This is Michael Shapiro. Welcome to this month's Interplay, Conversations in Music. And I'm so pleased to be today with Stephen Isserlis, who is a w remarkable musician. And I think I'm speaking to you, to you from uh, the UK. Is that right, Stephen? Yep. At home in London. And I am at home in Chappaqua, New York, north of New York City. And here we are talking about our favorite topic, which is why should anyone listen? But more than that, why do they listen? So first, you're a remarkable fellow because first off, I should like to say as a musician and somebody who's also a writer, you've done both and you're very conscious of not just, um, I should say, interpreting, but recreating. And let me go to this. You've written about some of your quotes um, enthusiasms among composers, which I love this. It's on your website. People should refer to it. Where you talk about Taneyev and your relation to him and to um, uh, Carl Fruling, Schumann, Saint-Saëns, mm -hmm. and my great-grand teacher, Faure. Ah! Aha! Oh, so you Boulanger. Boulanger, Elisig Meister, me. I, I missed... Uh, studying with her um, by a few years. But uh, Ellie Siegmeister put me through four years of Species Counterpoint, all the things he, he learned from her in the 20s when he was there with Copeland. Mm -hmm. So I, I had the, the, the training. And then later I studied with, with Longy. So I got the ear training that Ma Mademoiselle Dudunay gave people. Wow. But in any event, when you're approaching a foray sonata, especially the second, or you're doing a Shostakovich sonata, the, the, tell tell the, the people listening your your attempt, and I can only call it attempt because we all attempt to get into the style of that piece. How do you start? And you've done everything, but how do you start? You sit down at the piano with the score. I just go through saying first subject, second subject, third subject. Okay, this is a variation on the first subject. It's a variation on the second subject and so on, which sounds quite dry, but it isn't, because it's like working out, if you read a novel, who the main characters are and what they're like. And then you sort of, you know, get to feel the characters, the different personalities of all the themes, how they interact. I mean, as I said, the word I keep coming back to is story. I mean, it's more obvious in a place, piece like the Shostakovich sonata that you mentioned, which yes, is much Russian storytelling. It's like a, the first movement is like a ballad, you know, and it's cinematic and it's... Uh, it's very easy to conjure up visual images, story images oh. for it. The Foray Sonata you mentioned, that's more a mood. I mean, that's just, again, in a way, it's more like Beethoven. You actually think in more purely musical terms. I find I don't need too many visual images for Foray. Um, that it is such pure music, but emotional images, yes and the extraordinary emotions that those both foray sonatas conjure up. For me, they are, I mean, I love Shostakovich, I love Debussy sonata, I love, but for me, the foray sonatas are absolutely the pinnacle of 20th century cello sonatas by a long way. I agree. You know, I, I, I worked with uh, Stalker on the uh, Debussy sonata, which is a late yeah. piece. I accompanied him actually in a masterclass years yeah. back. And I did notice his attack was different in that piece than, let's say, in the, in the Sassons uh, cello concerto yeah. or the Schumann. 
do you approach the music, and I'm, now I'm talking to the cello students who may be watching this, with a different attack, a different tonal structure in your head? Well, it's more the music brings it to me. I mean, you look at the music and it makes you play in a different way. I mean, ah. I would play Haydn like I would play Shostakovich. It's not because I'm trying particularly to be authentic, but it's just because the music demands it. It'd be ridiculous to play Haydn like Shostakovich or vice versa. Um, you know, it's like playing different characters in a play, in, in different plays, rather. You would talk in different ways and different voices you use different accents maybe um mm. it's still you you know I, I don't feel i'm not being myself with any of these composers but i guess it's different sides i mean haydn has all the wit all the emotion you could want but it's wearing beautiful clothes the whole time shostakovich you want grotesquery because a lot of grotesquery in in this shostakovich in general i think um, Foray, you need, I don't know, I find one needs more contour to the phrases in Foray than maybe any other composer. Ah. I find, you know, there's a lot if I'm playing with people, and some people are born to play Foray, and some people just, they're not natural Foray players, I find. And the ones that are born to have this, just this naturally sort of undulating lines that are, so, I find, so beautiful in Foray. And it just comes like Connie Shee, for instance, with whom I played the sonatas so many times. She was born to play Foray. Can one be not be born to play something but learn it, nurture versus nature? Of course. And you say of course, but it's not always the case. I, I've experienced at least in coaching people in all kinds of things that yeah. sometimes it's not quite there. How can the student, again, I love talking to that student out there, how, could, how should that student find the style and the attack and the way of phrasing? Because you're a master phraser. Well, I can think of ways they shouldn't. Certainly not by listening to other performances. Uh -huh. Certainly not by playing in a way that isn't natural to them, that they think is the style. I mean, that we get so much with Bach. It drives me mad, the way pe people play Bach and think they're being authentic. There's nothing mm. authentic about being mannered or affected or playing it so fast that you can't feel the beauty or the emotion of the music. Um, you have to identify with the role like an actor. You have to become the role. And I guess just by studying it more and more, um, the more you study a piece, the more it will reveal itself. And I don't mean by practicing it. I mean by looking at the score and thinking about it and thinking what it's really saying, thinking where all the phrases lead, where they lead away from. I mean, you know, some people are very good at going to the center of a phrase, but they forget to come away from it. Or some people don't know where the center of each phrase is, which you have to do. You have not just by instinct. I think you actually need to know where the center of a phrase is or part of a phrase. Because each phrase or part of a phrase has a, has a central point that the music will go towards and then come away from. And it's important to know that, um, even do you consciously. Think you know, do, you, do you know more now than you did? Oh, yeah, because I'm studying all the time. Um, That's right. You know, I had a conversation once with Elizabeth Furtwängler, who told a story to my teacher, Karl Bamberger, and it's an interesting one. She walked past the study once, and Furtwängler was studying Brahms I. About to in the late forties or early fifties, about to conduct it in Vienna, Berlin, whatever it was, she says, 
Wilhelm, what are you doing? You've conducted, how many times have you conducted that? He said, 60 times, 70 times, I don't know. She says, why are you looking at it? And he said, I might miss something. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, a great work like the Schumann Cello Concerto or the Forest Sonatas or Beethoven Sonatas, of course, Bach Suites, of course. I'm just talking about the cello repertoire, but any great music will tell you an infinite number of things and you can never stop learning it and it'll tell you different things every time you play it. Let's talk about telling different things because the one great thing that I love about your playing and you as a musician and personality. By the way, Paul Totelier used to say that a great musician has a great personality, and you certainly do. It comes across in everything you do. Absolutely. I remember. Well, it's quite true. I met, I suppose I must have met Totelier a few times, but I remember, I think the last time I met him, he heard me play the Bloch pieces from Jewish Life at wow. the Mostobovich's Cello Festival in Washington. I remember mm. the, the next day, he said, he was very nice about it. And then he said, but a great cellist needs. And he started listing things. And he said, you have that, you have that. And I'm sure he was going to tell me things I didn't have. But luckily, so, well, maybe not luckily, he got sort of sidetracked and was so carried away with his own eloquence, he forgot to tell me what it was I didn't have. Well, you have the personality. And I have to say, when I met him, he reminded me of Don Quixote. Of course, he cultivated that. Didn't he? Um, but let's talk about let's talk about personality in not only in your playing but you play across the board as it were you play as a soloist your Bach's cello suites are remarkable and you've even written a wonderful book about them which I'm in the midst of reading now thank you very much on Kindle it's avail widely available folks but you've also written two wonderful children's books and as a father I thank you for those as well about Beethoven and Handel. But getting back to playing, yes, with orchestra. When you play with orchestra, I noticed those ears going out and enveloping everyone that you could in the orchestra to try to make it a chamber music experience. Mm. Coming out of your chamber music playing. Yeah. Definitely. You don't coach sing you don't coach singers, I know that. Or maybe you do, but very rarely. But you're the way you sing on the cello, to me, is extraordinary. And it's the way there is this definite crossover. Yeah. Stephen, do you think there's a crossover from your writing? Your writing, your, your arranging, but also your wonderful articles and your wonderful books. Is there a crossover into the playing? It's all communicating. You know, it comes from the same thing, the sort of love of music, which I certainly do have. I just adore music, maybe too much. I don't know. It's almost an well, obsession. It's not too much. Well, because isn't it civilization? It's for my friends. Um, but, not for the public, too. <laughs> that's nice. Um, but yeah, it's all communicating. I have this love of music and I just want to share it. And it might be a specific piece of music that I'm playing or a specific composer. In fact, the children's books you mentioned there, um, they're each about six composers. They have Beethoven and Handel in the title, but each book features the st life stories of six composers. And then I also wrote this book, co-wrote it with a very nice co-author called Robert Schumann. We wrote Advice for Young Musicians. That's I know the book. To do. And that was, um, that was my commentary on his Advice for Young Musicians. I was just trying to bring it up today. You know, so you, in your enthusiasms on your website, you talk about the violin concerto of oh, yeah. Schumann. 
which mm. I adore, especially in Yehudi's uh, performance that he did with Barbaroli. Absolutely, with Barbaroli. Yeah. Oh, my heavens. I have an, somewhat of an issue with the third movement, I should mm. say. It's a little herky-jerky, but <laughs> perhaps. But those first two movements, oh, my heavens. I the last, I've had problems with the last one until I taught it. And then when I actually looked at the score, I think this makes perfect sense. But you always hear too much of the violin. Ah. It's actually really another chamber music piece. And if you if if the orchestra leads, it becomes it makes perfect sense. And the only problem with that beautiful menuhin recording, which apparently he felt was his best recording, um, is that you don't hear enough of the orchestra. There's too much violin. And I had a friend remix it who's into such things. He re remixed it so you can hear more of the orchestra and it's better. But it is gorgeous playing that, I agree. Um, but there's, you know, I find it very hard to have any shadow of criticism about one note Schumann wrote. I think the man was a complete genius and everything he wrote was perfect. And we have to work to understand some of the later music. But actually, once you've understood it, it's, if anything, even greater than the earlier music. I, so. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And, you know, the retouchings of the symphonies is also something that um, I'm not so sure is right. It's not necessary. It's like Shostakovich tried to reorchestrate the cello concerto, and apparently he bitterly regretted it at the end because he realized... The Schumann cello concerto. There's absolutely no reason for it whatsoever. It's perfect. I've conducted the first cello concerto of Shostakovich, but not the, the huge second one. You play both. Yeah, I play number one much more often, but I have played number two, yeah. Number one has that strange, very long cadenza. Yeah. Which, well, it, with, the, with all the, the orchestra players were all sitting there saying, okay, when do we come in? <laughs> you know, this yeah, is going on a bit long. <laughs> Actually, that's one, one, <laughs> that's one of the nicest orchestras in the world. I play with the Deutsche Symphony Orchestra in Berlin. Yeah. And I, I stopped at the dress rehearsal. I said, okay, let's go to the last moment. And they all said, no, we want to hear it. So they got to hear it twice. Masochists. That's very unusual. Most orchestras, nice though, <laughs> as nice as they may be, would not say that. Well, that's very, very rare special. because the conductors want to practice and not wait that movement. Oh, but, <laughs> well, look, I've spoken to some soloists, which I find very interesting. Uh, some of them are very cautious and don't speak about conductors too much. But the one that I spoke to, and I will mention her name, is Simona Dinerstein, where she spoke, the pianist, where she speaks about collaboration. There's a famous story of Klemperer with, uh, 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 what's his name? Um, oh, my God, the American pianist who recorded with Cell. In any event, they Leon went Fletcher. through... Leah Fleischer, thank you, who passed away recently. And they, they went through days and days of rehearsals with Klemperer, and Klemperer saying nothing to Leon Fleischer the whole time until the dress, and he, he looks at Fleischer at the end, and he, he goes, good. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> so, but the thing that Simona spoke about is that the to use the word of the show, the interplay between the soloist and the conductor and the orchestra is for her a rare experience, which shocked me because it's the thing I love the most is yeah. dealing with that soloist and dealing with the orchestra and just bringing in this wonderful chamber music and listening experience. Mm -hmm. Now, getting back to, uh, for example, the ranges, as a composer, I'm very interested in this, the ranges of the cello. 
if you listen to the Dvorak cello concerto, isn't it quite high in the tessitura? A lot of it? Some of it. I wouldn't say a lot Some of it. Some of it. it. And do, do, do you think... Really. It's correct. Um... But what's the... And also, in Elgar, which I've done, you notice the orchestra's commenting on what the cello is doing mostly, mm -hmm. but don't, doesn't surround the cello. So in a question of tessitura... Do you think there is an issue for the composer in writing a cello concerto with range and covering the oh, instrument because of the overtones? There were, I don't know what it's because of, but the cello is not such a loud instrument. I mean, I'm not the loudest cellist in the world, and I don't want to be. That's not my not my way. Um, but the cello is not, you know, if I play with a violin, if you hear a cello and violin play together, it's... Ugh, very, very rare that you hear less of the violinist than of the cellist. The violin is higher and more piercing. Um, and the cello, by its nature, shouldn't be like that. It should be a mellow, lyrical instrument, um, which, of course, is exciting as you like. I mean, Shostakovich in the first concerto doesn't use it much that way. He finds a brilliant new, brilliant new way to, to use it. But generally, I'd say, well, like the Dvorak is heroic, but it's also very lyrical and very intimate. And Dvorak is, for me, perhaps the more difficult of the great concertos balance-wise. You do have to be very careful. Um, and it was said at the first performance in London in 1896. We said, unfortunately, you couldn't hear the cello enough. That is always a problem in the Dvorak because it is a big orchestra. But again, I think it's chamber music. And I, you know, I really think that. And if an orchestra has a light style... Then it's if they play sort of heavily and so you know dig into their instruments or you know they want this heavy style which for me is not Dvorak that can yeah. be a problem but if it, they know how to sort of bring out the folk rhythms and the dancing in the music then it's okay um so i mean of course it's one of my all-time favorite works is the first class piece of classical music i fell in love with um and i adore it still Massive. I can't get I can't get past the shock I have of that violin coming in at the end. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the most amazing right. section? Uh, hmm? I think there's many amazing sections. I know, but that when he does that, it's Which a combination. Entry, the first or the second of the violin. Say again? Which entry of the solo violin? The first or the second? Oh, I think the second one. That's where he quotes from the song that his sister in law loved. Weird thing about that is that the first is sort of, you know, at a very exciting, full-throated moment, and he marks the piano, the violin piano. I think cello's fortissima, just trilling. And then the second <laughs> time, where it's really gentle and lyrical and inward-looking, he marks it forte. <laughs> For me, is a very strange thing. It always gives me the chills. I just love the way that he does that. Oh, it's, the whole piece is just genius. You know, talking yeah. about the personalities and composers, when we first met just before the broadcast, you, you mentioned this guy who, whose house I was just at in Vienna, you know, the, the so-called figure house. But the personalities of composers and the ones that you have played from Bach to Addis and everyone else these days, you know, I, I think about this greatly when I'm studying a score uh, because... Um, I think one has to be a little extracurricular, don't you think? And not just dealing with the, the music telling you what to do, which it has to do, mm. but knowing something about the human beings. I mean, I cannot deal with Wagner. I cannot do it. Mm. I cannot conduct it. I'm poor at it. I've never been accustomed to it. 
Are there composers you feel that way about, that you cannot play their music? Um, you know, you can't base your interpretation on, on their lives. I think they their music tells us about their lives, or doesn't. You know, it depends how confessional their music is. Schumann himself said that everything in his life came out in his music, and that you can feel. Um, it's very can be very useful to know when a composer is quoting something. Like for, you mentioned Shostakovich's second concerto, mm-hmm. and I was having trouble with understanding the sort of the the cadence into G major that keeps coming in the last moment. And I thought, what is he doing? He's quoting something. And I remember that around the same time he wrote that concerto, he orchestrated Mazorsky's Songs and Dances of Death. Yeah, so I, I, I know it. it. It's wonderful. Yeah. And I gave it a lesson and there was that phrase. And so then I had words to it and then it fell into place. So things that like that is. can be useful. He's a fascinating person because everything that still comes out about him, I, I found amazing. I met his son and his grandson once backstage oh, yeah. with, with Slava, when Slava oh, yeah. did the fourth, 14th Symphony with Galina. It was quite something at Carnegie Hall. Um, 14th but, Symphony. Uh, the 14th, which is my favorite of Shostakovich. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's an extraordinary piece. I'm not saying from the lives we necessarily get something, but I, I do believe that if you don't have a sense of their lives and where they come from, it's sometimes just difficult in abstractly looking at the score. It's just not enough sometimes. I'm not saying always. But on the other hand, it can also have a negative effect. I mean, yes, I think so. With yeah. testimony coming out, people started yeah. ignoring the beauty and the tenderness there can be in his music. I mean, it's not Quite. just all gloom and doom and Soviet police on the other side of the door. That's part yeah. of it, but it's not all of it by any means. He's a great romantic composer as well. And people started brutalizing his music, I think, because they've they'd read testimony, which isn't by him anyway. Um, and so who knows I how, think... how much is true, you know, in, in Volkov's uh, rendition? We don't know. I don't think so. Though I did meet him once. Oh. Was, um, yes, in the in a box at Carnegie Hall. I was when Ashkenazi did his um, sort of forgotten Soviet music series. Oh. I played Kandelsky Concerto Number Two, and then. I think it was the next night, or the night before. I was in the box, and Solomon, I was introduced to this man as Solomon Volkov, which was fascinating. I really enjoyed meeting. The only thing is, well, I really remember, I don't remember what he said, unfortunately. I just remember I was desperate to go to the bathroom, and then the interval was over, because I spent it all talking to him. But that's not the most sort of spiritual memory. Well, it is what it is. It is a human memory. Um, one last question and, and thought. Um, something that older composers think about why should certain music last? For example, you have mentioned uh, in your website, which I love, these composers who you feel are somewhat neglected in certain ways, from Sassons and Fauré to uh, late Schumann and Tanayev, and another composer who no one really knows of. Why does certain music last? My friend Martin Bresnik says it's because musicians want to play it. But is that really the whole answer? I think it's I think it's a very complicated question. I mean, I think, yes, partly because musicians want to play it. Um, I think composers who have become known as major composers are those who have a recognizable voice. Like for me, Vivaldi, I'm not sure I call I wouldn't call him a great composer, although I love the seasons. But I think also he wrote a lot of very automatic stuff. But the moment you turn on the radio, ah, oh, that's Vivaldi. And you can't do that with Sansons, for instance. 
Sansons keeps changing style. And you can't say, oh, that's Sansons, because it probably isn't. Um, and so I think that's what defines maybe a major composer, not a great composer, because I think Sansons in his way was maybe great. Um, but Dempsey Ravel, Foray, much more easy to identify immediately. But Foray, again, his late music, he's writing for a, in a way for himself. So it's never going to be sort of, you know, sort of fill the concert halls. It's never going to be a Marlis, I mean, you know, he's Marlis Symphony or whatever. It's never going to have that effect on people. It's a sort of, his late music is ecstatic and I think it's totally wonderful, but I don't expect it ever to be as popular as Mahler or whatever, um, or Shostakovich. Because you know, he wrote the Requiem, Fauré wrote, wrote the Requiem for himself. <laughs> well, maybe most composers wrote their requiems for themselves, like your friend yeah. there and Schumann. And um, yes, it's an interesting uh, comment. I mean, Verdi they have to push him to do it, but you know, it's interesting about the Fauré Requiem, which is just such an incredibly wonderful, deep feeling piece. Um, I, I one one last he wasn't thought. Religious. I'm sorry. What did you say? He wasn't even very religious. If no, he was not. He was not, and it's a, kind of a very Catholic piece. You think. Yes, sir. Different elements of music, melody, harmony, timbre, rhythm, chordal structure, all the things we learn in, in conservatory. And you talked about story when we started. The lack, I'm not talking about Rachmaninoff melodic line, but I've had this conversation with many musicians in that the fact that if one is not a great melodist in the writing or in the playing, there's no story to be told. Now, you could say that there are germs, there are germs in Beethoven's music or Haydn, certainly, that aren't like this guy who was a natural tunesmith. Some people really have to work at it. But if all the elements are not working in the music of Baccarini or Addis or anybody in between, does it not rise to where it should? Or how important are these? Quincy Jones, for example, calls melody number one. How do you feel about all that? Wasn't he another Nadia Boulanger student? He was, sorry. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it helps composers to be popular, whether it helps to be great music. I mean, like one of my very favorite British composers is Frank Bridge. But as his style became more complex and for me more interesting, as he got, he, he really didn't, wasn't bothered about writing beautiful melodies like Elgar writes, these gorgeous melodies. And therefore, he's popular and he, you know, he reaches people's hearts immediately. Bridge was going sort of elsewhere and um, doesn't make it any less great. It just makes it slightly more difficult. To, like Tanev for me is the most wonderful composer, but I don't particularly, you know, I don't go around humming Tanev melodies like I would Tchaikovsky. But listen, and I'm not talking about beauty. <laughs> Stephen, if I may interrupt, I'm not talking necessarily about beauty. No, I mean, not even, but even melody. I can't think of a tiny of melody particularly. Whereas, you know, you can think of so many Tchaikovsky melodies. And that's why Tchaikovsky will always be more popular. But, you know, Tanev is great in his way too. He's just, as Fauré said of his music, and he's probably talking mostly about his late music, he said, I realise my music is not for everybody. I mean, I wish it were for everybody and I play it as often as I can and hope it is for everybody. But I realise it's, it's more challenging Late foray is more challenging than early foray, for instance. Isaac Beshev, a singer in his novel, said that 
without story, there's no novel writing, which is an interesting comment from somebody like him. Is that true of melody? Yeah. You don't think yeah. it's true of melody? Of music. I think it's true of music. There's always a story. Even if the melodic line is lacking? Well, lacking. It might just not be a memorable tune. It doesn't mean to say the melodic line is lacking. Well, lacking in the sense of not generating the piece. I mean, if you talk about, is da-da-da-da the greatest melody in the world? I don't think so. <laughs> no, I it, wouldn't even say the Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy, is the greatest melody in the world. That's well, quite simple. Yeah. But simple. it's what he does. It's the flowering of, of the germ. That's what's important. That is what's important. I just what find these questions so interesting. I'm sorry? It's what the composer does with the material. Yeah. So. And then what you do as a player. Um, well, is it really what done. that's my job that's your job it's, it's, it should be it should be um, I can't say honestly I think of it as a job um, more of a vacation but yeah my task is to become that composer's music I mean as I said if I were to play Hamlet I would want to become Hamlet as an actor and it's exactly the same with music telling the story Stephen Isolis character Stephen Ursula's remarkable cellist, musician, writer. I could listen to you all night. <laughs> friend of all of us. Ah, oh, thank you. Teacher, showing the way. Thank you for your stories. And keep on telling them because we need, we need to hear them. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I am so pleased to have Stephen Ursula's on my broadcast. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. This is Michael Shapiro on Interplay Conversations in Music. Until next time, thank you.